Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Chris Burke, a physical therapist, and I serve as chair-elect of the DDSIG. I'm here today with Colin Grove, who, along with his team, their poster was runner-up in the research category at the International Conference for Vestibular Rehab this past October. This poster and his research has focused on vestibular and ocular motor dysfunction in people living with MS. So welcome, Colin, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We love to have you, yes. So please tell me a little bit about your professional background and what you do. Sure. I've been a physical therapist for a long time, 28 years. Most of that career has been spent in clinical practice in different settings. I've practiced in the inpatient and the outpatient settings, most recently in outpatient neuro rehab. About eight years ago, I decided to transition from a fully clinical career to a career as a clinician scientist. And so I pursued a a DPT and a PhD together, finished the DPT in 2016 and the PhD in 2020. And then subsequent to that, moved into a postdoctoral training phase. And that's currently what I'm in now, working in Dr. Michael Schubert's lab at Johns Hopkins University. And he is my primary mentor here. I'm grateful that I also get to stay in the clinic some too. So for example, I'm able to see patients still one day a week while juggling the postdoc duties as well. So I'm able to keep my hand in the clinic and see patients, which is definitely a love of mine. So that that was a lot of schooling, DPT and then a PhD. That's very adventurous. (laughs) All right. Um, So the title of your poster was People Living with Advanced Multiple Sclerosis Demonstrate Unique Strategies to compensate for vestibular ocular reflex deficits. And it looks like your name is on probably about three other articles that we came across in, in, with similar topics. It's been, this has been a great project. I'm here representing a team of people. There's uh, Andrew Wagner from the Ohio State University, Brian Lloyd, the University of Montana, Lee Dibble at Utah, and then Michael Schubert, who's my mentor here at Hopkins. Uh, we've we've been on a trio of papers this year, and we're continuing that work going forward. I thought before we get into more of the research findings, I thought it might be helpful to just review some basic definitions. So when we talk about VOR gain, we're looking at the ratio of the eye velocity to the head velocity or movement, right? We want that to be one is ideal. Exactly. Exactly. We divide eye velocity by head velocity to to get the VOR gain. And when the eyes do not move as much as the head moves, they don't, they're under compensatory is the term that we use. The VOR gain is less than one. Less right. than 0.8 is considered abnormal in most situations. So I, I think a lot of people who maybe are familiar with vestibular know what we see when there's a, a hypofunction Um, But maybe not so much when there's central findings, right? Right. Um, So so thinking about it, when I think about someone who has a a unilateral vestibular hypofunction, right, and we do the head impulse test, 
that when we thrust to the involved side, the eyes will fall off the target. And then we do this compensatory saccade to bring it back. That's exactly right. So thinking about for people with MS, how might that be a little bit different? That's a, a great question. So if what we're testing when we do the head impulse test is the integrity of the vestibular ocular reflex, right? And so that reflex has a peripheral side and it has a central side. And so an impairment in the vestibular ocular reflex can manifest with either a peripheral lesion like a vestibular hypofunction, like you said, or if there's damage within the central vestibular and ocular motor pathways. So it's possible to have a normal input from the inner ear. So the inner ear is sending accurate information about the head movement to the brain, but then it gets scrambled in the brain by, for example, a, a lesion. And then the output side of it, the eye movement to compensate for the head movement, either isn't there or it's deficient in some way in which a compensatory saccade is needed. So it's a secondary eye movement that the brain uses to augment the functioning of the VOR. So it was interesting when I was looking at the poster and, and reading some of the other research articles, something I didn't know was that there's different types of compensatory saccades. There was overt and covert, and I had to keep writing down which was which, but maybe you could yes. explain that a little bit better because some of your findings talk about that. That's right. So the naming convention is based on whether or not the saccade, so again, this eye movement, this quick darting eye movement that's used to augment the VOR, it's based on whether that occurs during the head movement or after the head movement is completed. So during the head impulse test, if there's a compensatory saccade while the head is moving, we call that a covert saccade. And it's, you can think of it as covert as it's, it's unseen. It's sort of under the radar because you as a clinician are likely not going to see it during the head movement. The eye will move while the head is moving and you just won't pick it up. It's after the head stops moving though, if the eyes have been drawn off target, like you mentioned a minute ago, they are, if the VOR is deficient, then you see this big obvious eye movement to pull the eyes back onto the target. And that's what we call an overt saccade. It's overt, it's obvious, it's sort of in your face. Okay, that's a good way to remember it. And my understanding was always that that was controlled by central mechanisms. Is that correct or? That is that is still being explored. And that's one of the papers that we published this year with Andrew Wagner as the lead author. We looked at what is the, what's the mechanism behind or underneath covert versus overt saccades. And in, in that paper, one of the things we talk about based on our data was that it appears that covert saccades are likely uh, generated by signals from the periphery and overt as you were going towards, um, overt saccades appear to be um, generated by central mechanisms. And both can help to have the VOR gain to improve, right? Right, right. The, the object is, you know, with the head impulse test, or with just normal daily head movement as you're moving around, as you're walking, as you're driving and you're bouncing down the road, 
you know, the, the idea is to be able to use your VOR to help hold your eyes on a target. Right. And so both covert and overt saccades, their job is to help minimize the amount of gaze position error. So that amount that the eyes are off target after a head movement. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so that at least we have some of these definitions down. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about what, for the poster, what your findings showed. Yeah. So one of the things that we've shown is that the amount of VOR gain in, in people with MS, how much residual gain is there determines some of the characteristics of the compensatory saccades that we see, for example. So um, to an extent, the the lower the VOR gain, the um, more obvious the compensatory saccades are going to be in people with MS to to an extent though. Uh, one of the one of the unique findings that we've shown is that some patients with MS, when you do the head impulse test, their eyes drift with the head. So there's there's no VOR response. And at least that we can measure, there's no compensatory saccade. So some individuals that have really, really low or very poor VOR gain, very poor VOR function, they may not have a compensatory saccade at all. It's as if you move the person's head and the brain says, I've got nothing. It doesn't generate a movement. And most people with MS who would have issues with the ocular motor are people who their lesions might be found more in like the brain stem and the cerebellar, right? Because that's where those pathways are located. That's right. And the, uh, such a large proportion of individuals with MS have infratentorial involvement, have brain right. stem and cerebellar involvement. And the the picture that we're starting to get now after doing this work is, is that that circuitry is probably implicated in the in what we're seeing and specifically one of the circuits is the medial longitudinal fasciculus right and, you know in our work we didn't have any imaging to mm-hmm. back that up and to you know make strong stronger statements than what we could in, in the papers but we do start to see uh, some implications of the mlf being involved particularly in people with MS that are more disabled, so higher levels of disability. It was interesting. Something else I had read in one of the articles was talking about people who had like moderate MS, might their difficulties might be as equal to people with bilateral vestibular dysfunction. So I found that interesting. Yeah. So we grouped them into categories based on EDSS, right? And some of the original language that Kurtzke used when the scale was developed, we used to define these categories as uh, minimal, mild, moderate. Mm-hmm. So in our in our case, we didn't have anybody with an EDSS score of, of greater than six, and so our moderates were the those were the the most impaired people in our group, and they had really significant gaze position errors. To the and the and the the amount of the gaze position error was similar to what you would see in somebody with bilateral vestibular hypofunction. Mm. So as their head moves, their eyes are off target as much as you would expect for someone with bilateral hypofunction. So they they could potentially have very significant oscillopsia, which 
you can measure. There's different ways to assess a person's self-report of oscillopsia. You know, you can use a standard visual analog scale. Right. Eric Anson from the University of Rochester also recently published the, an oscillopsia functional impact scale, to which attempts to quantify in a variety of different ways how badly oscillopsia is affecting the person. So I would recommend that. Right. And the people who were in your study, to be included in your study, they either had to have abnormal VOR gains or compensatory saccades bilaterally. Is that correct? So it's a good question. These these data were actually drawn from baseline testing for a clinical trial um, that Brian Lloyd was primarily responsible for running. And so for his trial, the, the inclusion criteria included things like they the, the individuals had to have a confirmed diagnosis of MS, so neurologist confirmed, imaging confirmed diagnosis of MS. They also had to be dizzy and or off balance. Right. And the way the way dizziness was defined was they had to have a score of greater than zero on the dizziness handicap inventory. Which is pretty easy. I mean I probably have a score high. <laughs> right, right, right. But oh, but maybe you don't have a diagnosis of MS. True, so, true, yes. So, so, and then from the standpoint of imbalance, that was defined in different ways. And so they, they could report a low confidence in their balance. So an activity-specific balance confidence score of less than 80%. They could have reported greater than a couple of falls in the prior 12 months. So those are the those are the sort of self-reported measures for for imbalance, and then we were coming in, and one of the one of the outcome measures for this trial was video head impulse testing and VOR gain, and so we were coming in and analyzing that raw data, but just from their baseline visit. So this was prior to these individuals actually starting the rehabilitation program that they did with Brian and his team, right. So you had found when you were doing the impulse testing with people who had modestly reduced VOR gain that they generated slow microsaccadic compensatory eye movements. So right. can you explain what microcompensatory saccades? What we were seeing is basically these tiny saccades where the eye will move a little bit at a time. It'll move a little bit and then it'll move a little bit more and then it'll move a little bit more. Instead of this big, obvious compensatory saccade that you're familiar with seeing with the head impulse test. So that was these, the micro ones maybe are not as effective as your large amplitude, you know, compensatory they, saccades. They they may not be, or they might be if given enough time. Mm -hmm. So if, if the brain can string enough of these micro compensatory saccades together, because they just they happen boom, 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 one, one right after the other one. And so it it may be that the cumulative impact of those microcompensatory saccades in many cases is enough to reestablish gaze position. But you think about it, it's taking a long time. Mm -hmm. So in, in the meantime, what is you know what's happening to the person's you know visual acuity? It's probably we don't know for sure, but it's probably not as good. So it may impair things like you know, reaction time based on visual tasks when the person's moving. We don't we don't know, but that was those micro compensatory saccades. They hadn't been described in the literature before, and like I said, we just we didn't have software that was 
that was slick enough to be able to pull them out, but it was clear that the eye was making a, a saccade just many, many in a row. And like in your inclusion and exclusion, did you, you tested like that the saccades and smooth pursuits were normal? Great question. So every participant went through a battery of tests mm -hmm. and it included things that are MS specific, like the EDSS, for example, and the functional systems were evaluated in each of these persons. But they also went through a your typical bedside clinical vestibular and ocular motor exam. And some of that included video goggles. And so mm -hmm. they were we're looking at pursuits, we're looking at saccades, but they they weren't being measured in a computerized way. So many of the individuals with MS did have impairments in ocular motor function. They might have had impaired pursuit, they might have had impaired saccades, they might have had nystagmus. So there were some individuals that clearly had a spontaneous nystagmus that was central in, in nature. And so those those people were all included and we analyzed their data. But one thing we cannot say for sure is what were the characteristics of their voluntary saccades. And that's that's something, you know, voluntary saccades can be affected in this group. And it would be great data to have. And as we go forward, that's data that we plan to collect in future work so we can make that comparison. So now trying to pull some of this, these findings into like the clinic, should I be screening like all my patients with MS, even if they don't have dizziness for, you know, some of these ocular motor deficits? Oh, fantastic question. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to say if, if they don't have dizziness, you know, patients describe dizziness in so many different ways, yeah. right? So I can tell you what I do in the clinic is if if somebody does come to me with a symptom of dizziness, you know, and I'm sure you do this too, is I always drill down and say, okay, what do you mean by that? And I try not to put words in their mouth, you know, ask them you know, without using the word dizziness or without using the word vertigo, you know, what do you actually feel? And that can help you to understand their situation we're seeing a pretty high prevalence of vestibular dysfunction in people with MS, just in the small cohorts that we have um, looked at. And there's evidence in the literature too, to support this, that really the majority of people with MS are going to have dizziness anywhere from 50 to 75%. So we think mm -hmm. that it really is a good idea to screen vestibular function screen ocular motor function in this group. And if you have the capability to do video and impulse testing, we think based on our findings that you may be able to use the video head impulse test to identify intranuclear ophthalmoplegia when you are not able to identify that with the naked eye. There's some evidence in our work and in a previous study that shows people with MS can have pretty significant impairments in VOR, so their gain can be pretty low. Their ocular motor exam can look 
really good. So an INO is not a parent on their ocular motor exam. But if you do a computational computerized analysis of their psychotic function, you can pick up INO. And it turns out that these individuals that I mentioned before that where you turn their head during the head impulse test and there's no response, we think that's probably pathognomic for INO, mm -hmm. even, even when it's not present on your face-to-face -face bedside exam. So you, you asked about the exam that everybody went through, and we talked about that a little bit. It's, it's good to note that none of the patients in this study had an obvious INO on their bedside exam, but we think we detected it with VHIT and data from other groups supports that. So if you think we didn't have the video head impulse test equipment, would we be able to pick up some of these findings just doing your regular bedside head impulse test? You might be able to. I don't know for sure. It's something that we need to look at. But anybody that I did a clinical head impulse test and I didn't see a response, I would wonder about INO. Now, the thing that we don't know, though, is how much longer would it have taken for these people to respond, right? Because we're only, when we do video head impulse testing, we're only measuring out to 500 milliseconds or measuring mm -hmm. you know, half a second. You have longer than that with a person in front of you when you're doing the, the clinical head impulse test. So it could be that you see in the situation of an occult INO during the clinical test, it could be that you just see a really long delay before their eyes correct back to the target. And the video equipment doesn't pick up that because it's too quick. So when we're recording with video head impulse testing, we only record out to 500 milliseconds. And we typically cut off the calculations of any compensatory saccades. Depending on the study, there are different thresholds, but we cut it off at about 350 milliseconds after the start of the, the head impulse. And the reason for that is to try to make sure that we're not getting confused by voluntary saccades that are generated by visual input, as opposed to saccades that are the brain's reaction to the vestibular input of the head movement. Now in people with MS, we decided to extend that window all the way out to the maximum to 500 milliseconds, thinking that in this population, we're probably going to see some conduction delays based on their pathology. So we wanted to give them as much time to show us what the vestibular system was going to do and how the, the ocular motor system was going to react to that vestibular input. Okay. So if we try to pull this information and how, how can we use this in the clinic for like intervention, if we're thinking about that they should have more of a personalized gaze stability training program because they have these different strategies, would mm -hmm. that look much different than what we typically think of with our VOR training? It might in the future. We know that those gaze stability exercises work. Mm -hmm. We know that people feel better after they do them. And that's that's true for people with MS too. One of Brian Lloyd's paper talks about how people in their trial did improve, their dizziness got better with gaze stability training, but it also got better with strength and uh, endurance training too. And so there seems to be this notion from Brian's work that just getting people moving makes a difference in terms of their dizziness. 
But if we want to retrain gaze stability, we don't know. It really hasn't been studied. There have been several trials of vestibular rehab, three or four trials of vestibular rehab over the past uh, decade plus. And there have been some nice improvements shown in terms of fatigue and balance and gait. But no one, to date, no one has reported gaze stability outcomes. So we, we don't really know if it would look different. Um, but I have a hunch that it would. And if we think about how to personalize the training for people, we need to be assessing the VOR, not just with lateral head impulses. So, you know, in the horizontal plane, we need to be assessing it in the vertical plane too. And that's that's been clear with some of the work that we've done, particularly as the, the disease progresses. So people with MS that have higher levels of disability tend to have worse VOR function than those with lower levels of disability and particularly related to vertical canal functions. Their visual acuity during vertical head movements is likely much, much worse than it is during horizontal head movements. And so you can start to make an argument for, well, I need to assess their VOR in both planes, horizontal and vertical, and I'm going to focus my treatment on the plane that's either abnormal, because you can have pretty good, pretty decent residual lateral function and have really bad vertical function. So maybe the person with MS that I'm treating is just going to do vertical gaze stability exercises. I don't know for sure, but that's based on the data that we have thus far. That seems like a plausible strategy is to customize the treatment based on plane, based on your exam findings. We think there's maybe an opportunity for customizing the training by developing ways to promote the firing of these compensatory saccades. But that hasn't been tested yet, so we don't know for sure, but we think that based on what we see with people with MS, for example, their covert saccade system seems to be functioning better than their overt saccade system. If we can find a way to facilitate covert saccades, we might be able to. But right now we don't have a way of... We don't have a way, right? We don't have a way. Right. So I think the best that I can say at this point is to try to, to personalize the treatment based on your exam findings, looking at what what's the system look like in the horizontal plane and what's the system look like in the vertical plane. Right. I, I had read that about the difference between the horizontal and the vertical. Why do you think that is? That... It goes back to the MLF. Okay. Yeah, so the pathways that carry vestibular ocular information within the brain run through the MLF mm -hmm. and the that is um, dominated by the vertical canal pathways. So the more damage you have to the MLF, the greater the deficit you're likely going to see in vertical VOR gain. Okay. One of the other articles that was talking about greater disability is associated with worse vestibular and compensatory ocular motor function found that some of the people with MS were able to effectively minimize the GPE. Um, and you wouldn't That's expect right. to see opsilopsia, but when you did dynamic visual acuity testing, they were like two and a half times worse than compared to healthy adults. Any thoughts on? Right. 
Well, that's that is that's a good point. That's consistent with the conversation that we've just been having. A minimal gaze position error. That's what GPE is. We were seeing that with horizontal movements, but it was much worse with gaze position error. Was much worse with vertical head movements. Um, so there's probably a difference there. But also, it's good to keep in mind that when you're measuring the VOR with something like a head impulse test, whether it's clinical or video-based, so the technology-based or not, you're testing a different frequency range of the VOR. So a test like dynamic visual acuity Mm -hmm. tests the VOR at lower frequencies than a test like the video head impulse does. And so part of what we wrote about was that it could be that people with MS have sort of a selective dysfunction on the lower end of the frequency spectrum that we don't know for sure. So more, re- more research needs to be done. Right? <laughs> so that was kind of my next question. What, what do you have on the back burner? Like where, where's your next direction going? Uh, we'd like to study this further. We, we, we know that we need to be mindful about how we select the individuals with MS and the, if we have a comparator group, what that looks like so that we're controlling for things like uh, age and gender, for example. We want to know more about, can you train gay stabilization function in people with MS? And does it does it make a difference? Like I said, every other trial that's been out so far ha- haven't reported on gay stability as an outcome measure of their trial. We have some preliminary data that suggests that some people with MS, they, they do benefit from VOR mm-hmm. training the kinds of training that you do in the clinic every day, VOR times one, VOR times two. But we don't yet know who is going to benefit. So there's clearly, and this is true probably for most clinical populations, you have responders and you have non-responders. Or you have you know, great responders and good responders and not so good responders. And part of what we want to find out is how do we know who those people are? So who, how can we predict who is going to be a responder who's going to benefit from traditional VOR exercises and how do we know who may not benefit from that as much and instead may benefit more from an approach like I mentioned a minute ago and that's trying to facilitate the generation of these covert compensatory saccades. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to understand that better. So we're planning we're planning on investigating that but we have a lot of work to do. But so for those of us who are in the clinic who are working with people with MS who have reports of dizziness, VOR training is perfectly safe and acceptable way for us to kind of provide intervention at this point, right? Yes. Not everyone, but many people do feel better. Mm -hmm. So they have less dizziness or they perceive an improvement from that kind of training. We have a pretty good sense that that sort of clinic-based training probably doesn't have the effect on VOR gain that we used to think it does. So the benefits are coming for other reasons, but we know that people are getting better. Some are. All right. So I think you hit on all the main questions that I had. Was there anything you felt like was important to share that we didn't get to? That's a good question. I I really think that it's it's just important to underscore the clinical value, right? And and you've touched on this already. So 
people with MS, particularly those that have complaints of dizziness or imbalance, we really do need to be screening those individuals for ocular motor and for vestibular dysfunction, and then tailoring what we do with them based on our exam findings. Uh, we know that vestibular rehabilitation works. We know that it works for people with MS in a variety of different ways. And hopefully soon we can demonstrate that it works for people with MS in terms of their gaze stability function too, and actually have some science to back up what we suspect already in the clinic. Or maybe some other interventions that could target more like the covert, you know, compensatory support. Right, right. New things will be coming. Be exciting to do more than just VOR one and two. <laughs> <laughs> well, and those, you know, those are, there are our tried and true exercises, Absolutely. right? Yep. That's, that's what we go to. And I think anything that you can do to make those exercises more interesting and more engaging mm -hmm. for people, you know, go for it. You know, Brooke Klatt from Pittsburgh has recently published some work looking at doing gaze stabilization exercises in people with cognitive dysfunction. And she was looking at people with dementia, but obviously individuals with MS have cognitive dysfunction too, or can have it. And so, you know, maybe some of her strategies that she used to try to promote gaze stabilization in those with cognitive dysfunction could be useful in this population too. But also some, some simple things to make it more interesting. So like, for example, I always let my patients choose their target. So they get to choose the word that they look at. Okay. And then um, we, you know, we print that out for them. That's something, you know, very basic. But at the same time, you know, when you're looking at your granddaughter's name, you're also, you're getting some positive um, brain energy from that too, which I think probably helps. I was going to say in our clinic, we sometimes challenge them even more and get some of the Stroop test cards and yes. do the gaze stabilization with that. Nice. There's evidence too that tells us that things like contrast matter. Mm -hmm. So the more stark the contrast is between the target and the background, it's probably beneficial. We know it's beneficial. So for example, the technology that's being developed at Hopkins uses a laser target in a dark room, which is about the best contrast as we know how to get right now. And so I have adopted that into my practice in some ways, even though I'm not able to replicate what this gizmo does, I can have my patients use a cat toy with a laser as their target and go into a dark room in their house and perform VOR times one or impulsive VOR. So just doing VOR towards their affected side, side yeah. or towards their more affected side and doing that with a high contrast target, like a laser dot might be more beneficial. We don't know for sure. It's just, you know, we're trying to like, like as you done throughout this conversation, trying to glean something from the literature and then bring it forward to the clinic. Right. Yeah. Well, that gives me some good ideas that I can bring into the clinic when I get back to the clinic. <laughs> Great. So I, I think we might have given you a heads up that we have this tradition with our podcast that we ask you what you do in your spare time that's not PT related. 
So I am a competitive triathlete and I have, I have been for a number of years. And so I get, I get my BDNF on the bike and in the pool and running. I spend a lot of time outside of work doing those things, training for ultra distance um, triathlon events and things like marathons. And I've had the good fortune to do one ultra marathon. I ran the Comrades Marathon in, in South Africa in 2018, which you should look that up. It's an incredible race. It's the oldest and the largest ultra marathon in the world. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, not sure that you want to do that on your hips, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> but it's a, it was a, well, I'll tell you, that was a cool, that was a cool event. I hope to be able to go back there someday. I couldn't walk for two weeks afterwards, <laughs> but you know, it was good. So I want to thank you again. This was a pleasure getting time to talk with you and hopefully you'll come back when you have more information to share with us. Yes, I'd be glad to. Thanks for joining us today and special thanks to our guest, Colin Grove. And if any of you are going to be at CSM, take a look. He's going to have another poster on this same topic. 4D is produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Our podcast team includes Tom Pageant, Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Ken Vinaco, Jeffrey Schmidt, and Carly Havard. And I'm Chris Burke. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a friend or colleague. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay of the PT Pinecast for providing music. And thanks for listening. Yeah, you need a new award, like best blooper of 2022. This would be a great place for you to edit because I forgot your quest. <laughs> All right. Did he freeze on your end? Because he froze on my end. <laughs> All of a sudden you were gone and I'm just like, wait for it. <laughs> we, we call ourselves Team Ocular Motor. Okay. I just said I had a hip replacement three days ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, I figured I could do a podcast. I can talk. Nice. Well, if we want to do a, a podcast for like the ortho section, we've got we've got it going right here. We already stole you from vestibular, so we'll <laughs> yeah. sit at that. Yeah. Whenever I do a shorter distance, I'm there, you know, at the end, eating my bagel and drinking my chocolate milk. And I'm thinking, I could be out there for another couple of hours. Why? This is good milk.